Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome to another edition of Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. Of course, we have Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery and Rich Lenkov from Downey and Lenkov. I'm your moderator, Ryan Burrow. Well, Donald Trump's organization got slapped with a massive fine in New York, and now the organization is about to look a whole lot different, and Mr. Trump won't be able to operate in the Big Apple anymore. He says that will actually end up hurting New York City in the long run. Clinical Associate Professor of Law at William & Mary, corporate lawyer, Jim Wheaton joins us to talk about that. Professor Wheaton, hello. Hey, how are you guys today? Doing well. Thanks so much. The uh, judge gave Trump 30 days to pay that judgment or come up with a bond. Uh, how did the judge come up with the figure that uh, he he did? Well, well, a couple of things. First, let me point out that although most of the media has reported it as a $355 million judgment, it's actually about $100 million more than that because he awarded prejudgment interest from various dates on different parts of the judgment. And that additional number uh, as of last week would be about $100 million more. So it's more like a $450 million number. Uh, What the judge did was look at his findings of fraud, look at the expert testimony that he received about what interest rate the Trump organization would have received for different projects had the actual financial condition been in front of the lenders. uh, And then based on the higher interest rate that the expert said would have been used, he calculated essentially gains that the Trump organization had received that they were not entitled to and ordered them to essentially to cough up those gains, just to disgorge those gains. So that $355 million number consists of three or four different numbers that derived out of different Trump projects on which he used financial statements that the judge found fraudulent. So, Professor, what restrictions did the judge place on Trump? There are really, really three categories of restrictions that are going to hamstring how the Trump organization operates going forward. One is that he said that he would continue using a former federal judge as the independent monitor for a minimum of three more years and also have that person go out and find a new compliance officer who would also monitor the organization. The second thing, as uh, you know, I think Rich alluded to a second ago, is the Trump organization is not allowed to use any funding they get from any financial institution registered in New York uh, going forward. And then finally, uh, he also banned the former president from serving in management of the various Trump companies for three years and banned his two sons from doing that for, for two years, which essentially means they've, they've lost that management tier and their ability to have a voice in how the companies are run. Professor, in a normal world with a normal de- corporate defendant, you know, this would be very damaging. It's not quite the corporate death penalty that many thought Ingeron would impose, but certainly it's very damaging to one's ability to continue beyond the three years to do business, especially in a city like New York, 
Um, you know, you would think that lenders would be reluctant to lend a normal defendant money in the future. Of course, this is not a normal situation. Trump is anything but a normal defendant. Um, given that, you know, at least one of his kids, Ivanka, is still able to transact business in the state of New York, although she probably doesn't want to by most accounts. Um, Jared Kushner's available, I suppose. And Trump is available in a few short years. I mean, do you think this really will have an impact on his ability to uh, do business going forward, given that he seems Teflon with most of these things? And, you know, perhaps in his defense, as he stated, the banks to, that were allegedly wronged actually made money and by his account would do so again. So ultimately, long term, what effect does this have on Trump's ability well, to be successful in New York? Well, well there, there's a lot in that question. Let me just take the the you know, the the immediate term effect, you've got a stranger essentially running the company or having a veto power over the company day to day. You've got the people who have traditionally made all the decisions not being allowed to make the decisions. And over these next three years, whatever happens after three years, there are going to be big decisions that have to be made. If, if interest rates go down, do we refinance? Do we sell a property like we sold in an opportunistic way, the DC hotel? Do we do we uh, engage in, in major leases when leases come up? And I think, you know, we're all generally aware that, you know, office properties right now are, are struggling a bit. And, and they're going to be, you know, I would assume they're going to be major decisions to be made within the three years on all of his major projects. The, you know, the projects include, for example, the, the uh, Trump building over there off Wacker in Chicago. Uh, that was one of the projects that the judge looked at. Uh, in addition to 40 Wall Street and in addition to, you know, the D.C. hotel. So some of these major projects are going to have to make some major decisions. And I don't see how you make those in any sort of reasonable or nimble way when you've got these kinds of restrictions in place. The other thing I would point out is, you know, they do new deals all the time. This is not Trump tennis shoes where all he has to do is license his name and he can do that outside of the the companies that the judge has restricted here, you know, to do new real estate business, to be able to pledge assets for loans or even for the appeal bond he has to post, uh, he's going to have to involve third parties. And third parties are going to have to decide, do I deal with this monitor and compliance officer when the former president can come back three years ago and say, well, I never agreed to those terms. I'm not going to honor them. So I think the ability to do new, new deals is is heavily restricted as well. Professor, how likely do you think it'll be that um, that the New York Attorney General Letitia James will seek seizure of Trump assets? I think anytime, and and let me compare it to the uh, the ninety some million dollars uh, that he owes uh, Ms. Carroll. I think anytime you're a lawyer representing somebody who has a big monetary judgment, and here the AG represents the state. You've got an obligation to make sure that the person against whom the judgment has been imposed doesn't run off and, you know, spend the money, dissipate, dissipate the, the funds. And so I would think that unless he has, you know, in New York to forestall that kind of enforcement from Attorney General James, he's going to have to either post an appeal bond or post the money itself. And so I would expect that if he doesn't do that, she would immediately go after whatever she can reach. Last question here on Legal Faceoff, Professor. Trump purportedly, at least by his deposition testimony, has $450 million in cash. Uh, that would cover this fine along with uh, the E. Jean Carroll 
uh, penalty. Is that true? First of all, how do we know if that's true? Do we think that it's likely that he would use that cash? I mean, he he said he's going to appeal, so obviously he's not leaving yet. And and based on his last disclosure form, that cash is mostly in the form of municipal bonds that he could probably readily liquidate. Um, Remember at the beginning, I said you've got 450 million with the prejudgment interest. So actually, when you add the Carroll money to that, that takes you to about 550. And then in New York, you've also got to account for uh, post-judgment interest, which runs at 9% from the day the judgment is entered. And so, you know, and, and typically in New York, as I understand it, people are expected to put another 10 or 15 or 20% down to protect people like Attorney General James against the post-judgment interest that she would be entitled to. So when you add another 20% to those numbers, you're starting to get up over 600 million. So I think there is realistically a potential liquidity issue if 400 to 450 is all that he's got available. More shoes. More more shoes. That's a lot of shoes, even at 400 a pop. Professor Jim Wheaton, thank you so much for the conversation today. No problem, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Continuing on legal face-off, forget NIL, the NLRB says NCAA basketball players are employees, at least at Dartmouth. So many letters here. From U of I, I can't stop myself now, LER alumni, professor of labor and employment relations and affiliated faculty of the College of Law, Michael Leroy. Professor Leroy is uh, going to spell all this out for us, I suppose. I'll try. Good to join you. Professor, thank you. So earlier this month, as Ryan mentioned, the NLRB, or for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with that acronym, the National Labor Relations Board's regional director in Boston found that members of the Dartmouth men's basketball team are employees and gave them the right to unionize. Can you tell us more about this ruling? Sure. Um, It's a repeat in some ways of 2014, 10 years ago. Northwestern went through the same process, their football team. They signed union authorization cards. They petitioned to the NLRB. They're the federal agency that runs union elections uh, under federal labor law. Um, They had their regional director in Chicago come out with the same ruling that we had uh, in Region 1, which is Boston. Um, that we have in Dartmouth 10 years later. So it looks like the same thing. Well, what what's different? Um, Northwestern appealed their election to the full five-member court 
it's not a court, it's a labor board, but they act like a court. And interestingly, that board said, we don't have jurisdiction. The reason we don't have jurisdiction is, even though Northwestern is private, and this labor law only covers private sector employers, and even if we assume that players are employees, those are two big assumptions here, you know, that that um, that we can go forward with this and that they're employees. It would destabilize all of college football. And to that point, at that time, there was only one private sector team in the Big Ten. Um, going forward, we're going to get USC in here. So you can't have collective bargaining with one team. It just it doesn't work. Now, what is different about uh, the current situation with Dartmouth is true, they are private sector, but their whole conference is private sector. So that Northwestern ruling doesn't apply anymore. And to make it even more interesting, um, they don't get scholarships because of a an Ivy League rule. They could sit down and say, all we want are scholarships, just like the NCAA allows, and they could have collective bargaining without destabilizing the whole apple cart here. All right. What detail, Professor, did the ruling go into in their determination? How are Dartmouth student athletes like employees, number one, number two? Uh, how presidential is this case on other universities, given, like you said, Dartmouth is part of the Ivy League. The basketball team is not a traditional power, you know, not playing it for a traditional powerhouse, not a lot of uh, income being derived from the basketball team, as you would see at a Duke or a Kentucky, for example. Sure. A couple of quick things to note. Um, the um, This decision focused on two main elements. One, the control that Dartmouth has over a basketball player's daily routine, in season especially. And here I just want to note, there are D2 and D3 athletic teams that have a lot of control over an athlete's time. Um, that's just in the nature of being in a sport. And so it also overlaps significantly with the concept of employment, who controls your time, and does it inure to the benefit of the organization? It certainly does for Dartmouth. Now, some people would say, oh, well, Dartmouth basketball isn't a serious matter. Um, well, Dartmouth thinks it's a big enough deal to sponsor the sport, and they've been in this space far longer than a lot of other schools that are big names are in it. So that's one element. How precedential is this? Not very, okay? It's going to be appealed, and it's it's silly to predict what the outcome of that will be. But what does this mean for other conferences? You know, for the Big Ten, it means little or nothing. There's another case chugging along by the NLRB in Los Angeles, um, where they're uh, asserting that uh, the University of Southern California, by the way, another private school, um, has an employment relationship with its football players. And the novelty here, uh, Rich, is that they are testing out a joint employment theory. And so their theory is this, uh, the lack of pay directly from schools, comes from the NCAA. NCAA is like the HR office setting pay at $0. The conference sets the schedule. So that's all of us who are working have a schedule and our employer sets it. And sometimes you've got to be here or there. And so the theory is that the private sector conference and the private sector um, NCAA are joint employers uh, with USC, and if USC moves over and will move over to the Big Ten, 
The implication is the Big Ten in time could be a joint employer with um, the NCAA um, uh, of, of their athletes, even at public schools. So, Professor, given the current landscape, the fact that we're fully expecting this um, decision to be appealed, what do you think is next for college athletes and college leaders? So I think the next thing isn't going to be Dartmouth. So a couple of things to say. The NLRB's processes are notoriously slow and appellate courts frequently overturn them. And if we have a Republican administration going into 2025, this whole thing's uh, blown out of the water. It just won't go forward. But apart from all of this, there's a case called Johnson versus NCAA, where a Villanova football player sued saying that I'm an employee, not under the National Labor Relations Act, but under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, that case was argued to a federal appeals court over a year ago. Any day now, we could get that decision to drop. Um, if they, if that court rules against employees, then my short answer is it'll take legislation to get it done. And there's no prospect of that happening. But the oral arguments indicated that, um, the court really was favoring the athletes. And if that happens, Christina, we are in a very, um, new world, uh, for college athletics. Last question, Professor. This is just one in the many cracks in the NCA model, uh, which basically for years has profited, um, you know, with a benefit of student athletes as the main driver of that income without really compensating them, save for this, you know, NIL um, development that happened a couple of years ago, which really only affects a small percentage of, of players. What do you think? Uh, how do you think this um, will relate to, for example, the class action lawsuits in several other states? Um, and how do you think this fits in with the overall NCAA model? Does it still work? Do they have to continue to allow student athletes to recover some kind of in income from uh, from their uh, athletic endeavors? Well, you know, I failed to answer a question you posed to me earlier. I said the, uh, you know, Dartmouth is not going to be presidential. And, you know, I talked about that regional director's ruling out of Boston. She also emphasized a case called Alston. That was the case in 2021 that changed the entire legal landscape in which a nine to nothing decision in a nine to nothing decision, the Supreme Court poured buckets of cold water over the NCAA's amateurism model. They, they don't think there's any credence to that. And so I think going forward, one way or another, athletes are going to be paid. And, and let me just briefly say, a lot of emphasis is put on, do the athletes make a lot of money for their schools? And in the conference, the power conferences, they do. But I just want us to think about a food truck um, on the Chicago street, and it's a mom and pop operation, and they employ two people, and, and they're not making money. My point is, you have to pay wages to people, whether you're making money or not. <laughs> and so this whole argument that, well, if the school makes enough money, that's not what the employment law looks at. It Again, it looks at control of your time and is your service benefiting the employer. Professor Michael Leroy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. most part, going viral from a mugshot isn't an ideal situation, but it seems to have worked out for our next guest. 
Veronica Coble is a registered nurse from Virginia and a resurfaced mugshot threw her into the spotlight months after she had a really bad day. Veronica, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So the headlines, Veronica, are, you know, hottest mugshot ever. Uh, Your mugshot went viral. Before we get to that and how it's impacted your life, how did you come to take that mugshot that night? What happened? Tell us. Well, I was actually on my way uh, to a vacation in Virginia, and it was a back road, kind of a wide open country road. And to be honest with you, I did not realize how fast I was going. I was just kind of like mindlessly driving. And especially being like in and around DC, you can't speed very much anyway. So I don't know. I was just kind of going down this road. I flew past a cop. He pulled me over, kind of the, you know, the usual protocol. And he gave me a ticket. And one of the last things he said, he was like, okay, this is your court date. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, thanks so much. Like thinking, okay, I'm literally just going to go online and pay this. And, um, one of my best friends is a lawyer in Virginia. And, um, I sent her, I was like, this was really weird. Like, I don't find the link, like where I can go to pay this ticket. And she was like, Veronica, this is like a felony in Virginia. And I was like, oh my goodness, take it from someone that like, I am a rule follower. I have never done anything bad in my life. Um, So I quite literally was like having a panic attack over it. So I had to get a lawyer and I went to my court date and pretty much it was up to the judge what happened. This was in a very small town. Um, Actually, the jail that I went to, I kind of say it was like traffic jail. So when people say, oh, she was in prison for speeding. No, I was not in prison. I would 100% not survive a day in prison. Um, We barely made it through jail. Um, But she gave me the sentence. She told me, you know, this was a very high speed, which I completely agree. This, This was, you know, dangerous. And she gave me at least... 24 hours in jail. I had to do community service as well as um, my license was suspended for 30 days and I had to pay a fine. So there was a lot to do, but um, she asked me, you know, what time at that point I was traveling for nursing. And she asked me, she was very kind, you know, what day can you do your, your jail time? And she said, I would prefer if you did it on a Friday night. That's when most of the like I hate to use this term, but like traffic jail people kind of go in. And um, I went in, I turned myself in about eight o'clock and everyone there was so nice. I was very nervous, Um, but they definitely, you know, looked after me and um, that mugshot was taken about three o'clock in the morning. So they woke me up from, from my sleep and I had to do all the protocol, you know, get pat down, everything and drug test, mugshot, all the above. So that was that's how it came to be. So we're looking. So it's good to know you're not a habitual offender. This is not a regular routine for you. This is a it sounds like a, an anomalous activity. But we're looking at the mugshot that, you know, has now uh, gone viral and so many people have seen it. So, my, you know, the first question is. I mean, it's a it's it's a it's a nice picture for sure. I mean, a lot of people speculate that you'd had many takes and that, you know, you had a stylist in in the traffic jail or something like that. Did you put any thought before this picture was taken? You said it was 3 a.m. So I assume this wasn't some like, you know, planned photo shoot, right? Uh, no. So actually, I was um, I turned myself in since it was a Friday I actually was coming from work. So I had like my normal I always try to look presentable for work. Okay. You know, it's my job. I am kind of like my own billboard. That's if you may. Um, So I was like, all right, I don't know. I'm just going to like 
do my normal makeup like I would. And I guess, I mean, I truly, I think I look like I have a terrible spray tan in this and my lips, I had to dissolve them after I saw this. I was like, oh, a little bit too much lip filler there. Um, but no stylist. I can really say this was definitely me being like sleep deprived. And it's funny because when this started to circulate, everyone's like, oh my gosh, she gives like this like mean mug. And truly the camera was like all the way above me and I'm five, six. Okay. At five, five, technically I'm like shrinking as time goes on, but they had me like face forward and I had to like look up and I was like, Oh my goodness, this is, this is going to be an interesting picture. And my two best friends were literally like waiting for the mug shot. They were like, I can't believe this is happening. And when it came out, they were like, Veronica, it's actually not a terrible picture of you. And I was like, all right, well, let's just keep this, you know, amongst the circle. We're not going to do anything. And um, ultimately, my friend kind of as a joke submitted it to the mugshot page, which is how all of this kind of began. Right. So that was several months later, right before it started to sort of get some uh, looks. Uh, and then what happened? I mean, you must have been a little surprised by all the notoriety that you received after this went viral. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously this is a mugshot. This is not anything that like I am proud of. Um, I, I did a crime and as I say, you do the crime, you do the time. So I did my time. And, um, when my friends submitted it, I kind of was, I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't know. Like what happens if it gets picked? Like I was really nervous because I am a nurse, you know, I didn't want this to get out there. I am a rather private person, even on my, you know, social media for the most part, gaining like all these followers. I literally thought my Instagram got hacked. Um, I logged on one night when I was in Philly, I was visiting my best friend and like this was a couple weeks or a couple months after that I knew that the picture on the mugshotty page had gotten posted and I had gained like a thousand followers. And I was like, oh no, my Instagram got hacked. Like, what is this? And I had a message from um, one of the, I forget what like editorial it was, but she was like, oh my God, what are your thoughts on your mugshot going viral? And I was like, I actually didn't even answer her. I was like, okay, whatever. This is like a spam. Like, I don't know what's going on. Um, and then someone actually sent me like the Snapchat, like there's like a news thing, the daily mail or something like that on Snapchat. And they had a picture of me, my mugshot and a Starbucks cup. And I was like, oh my God, this is really not happening. So I was very taken back. Um, definitely gained a lot of publicity, not happy about what I did, but I'm just one of those people, you know, life gives you lemons, I guess, make lemonade. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of times in these situations, we've covered a lot, a lots of similar stories, you know, people um, don't really want to talk about what brought them to that point in the first place. I think to your credit, you took responsibility. It's not the biggest crime in the world. We've all, you know, sped Speed it, sped, Ryan. I'm not sure, um, but anyway, uh, I really admire the fact that you took you know responsibility and sort of owned it and and uh, put a positive spin on it. Last question is, you know, uh, this went viral. Like we talked about, you've gained lots of followers. Um, you've got a presence on social media. Uh, certainly, I'm sure there's been some strange ramifications of that. You know, I'm sure you've got like weird proposals and like what's the weirdest thing that you want to share that has happened as a result of this sudden notoriety. 
Um, I mean, I will say this really took overseas, to be honest, like Germany. I literally had like a German news crew in my house a couple of weeks ago. And um, because in Germany, okay, the Autobahn, hello, they're like, we go 99. Like, (laughs) that's my normal speed. Um, So they really took to this and they kind of thought it was funny. But for the most part, I haven't gotten like a whole lot of weird stuff. I would say the most common thing is especially with like the only fans and like feet pictures and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, I am not traveling down that road. But thank you so much. Um, really appreciate that. But no, that will not be anything that I am doing. And um, that's kind of, you know, that's really it. To be honest with you, I don't really answer many of the messages that come through, but most of them are pretty nice. So I do thank them. You know, um, it's nice to have people, especially after this went viral. I got called like a man, you know what I mean? I'm just like, oh my goodness, I never thought myself as looking like a man, but okay. Um, but definitely a lot of people just complimented me looking like I say I look like Cindy Crawford. I'm like, okay, well, I will never be as half beautiful as her, but thank you so much. Um, but yeah, nothing too, too crazy. I would say the only fans and uh, the feet pics, definitely, but I will not be doing that. <laughs> did, did, did the arrest or the 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 mugshot going viral have any impact on your career at all or no um as of right now not really to be honest um which i've been very very lucky for i did tell my boss that this kind of happened um obviously when you do a background check on me i mean you can do background check on anyone nowadays um sorry i have a big dog um big dog mom um When this kind of happened, I did have to tell my boss just in case, but for my, my new job, I mean, obviously I knew they had to run a background check and I was just very upfront. I was like, look, this got knocked down to, from a felony to a misdemeanor. So technically I do have a misdemeanor on my record. Um, so that has been something I'm just very open with an employer about, but I do say, Hey, you know, this was for speeding, but it kind of got, you know, taken and some stuff happened. If you have any questions, you can let me know, but Pretty much if you Google my name at this point, my mom even did it the other day and she was not very pleased by what she saw and neither am I, but I've been very, very fortunate. You know, my employers have been understanding. Um, so I am grateful for that for sure. Veronica Koval, thank you so much for the discussion. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a great day, guys. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com.
Welcome back to Legal Faceoff on WGN. Don't forget to listen, like, and subscribe to the Legal Faceoff podcast on social media and WGNRadio.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag. Today, we're joined by Stephen Rios, president of IONPT Network. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. And Bill Donovan Jr., co-head of the McDermott, Will, and Emery's Class Action Practice. Thanks for coming on. Good to be back. All right. First, we talked about former President Donald Trump's rough week in the courts earlier in the show. Rich, you wanted to dig a little bit deeper with our panel and legal grab bag. Yeah. I mean, was it a rough week or wasn't it, right? I mean, from one perspective, Tina, obviously getting hit with uh, what will end up being probably a $500 million judgment when you consider the interest. That's a rough day for anyone on this planet. On the other hand, in his role as running for president and the likely Republican nominee, almost certainly after um, Nikki Haley gets trounced this weekend in South Carolina, that's probably the end of her campaign. Uh, you know, it's good news for him on the campaign trail. Of course, uh, he continues to uh, use these cases and these judgments against him as fodder for his political campaign. It seems to be working. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you get hit with that kind of judgment, uh, it stops short of the corporate death penalty, which would have made him operating in New York impossible. Um, but, you know, rough day. Uh, he's going to appeal. I don't think there's much to the appeal. Um, I think it was, you know, pretty well-reasoned decision, certainly long decision by uh, Judge Engeron. I think it will be upheld on, on appeal. George, I agree. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about what he'd have to do with respect to getting a bond and stuff. But, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that he announced that he's rolling out this amazing sneaker line um, along the, you know, at the same time that these judgments are coming in and, you know, query whether they are potentially infringing sneakers of some famous designers like Louboutin, for example. But, you know, won't go down that rabbit hole, at least not today. So if nothing else, Rich, I think he's probably going to be able to defray at least some of his uh, judgment by selling what will undoubtedly be a plethora of sneakers. Yeah, uh, gold sneakers, of course. Um, a couple of interesting things, Bill, that came out of this story was or this you know case um, you know, number one, and, and I, you know, most of the media reports didn't pick up on this, but I read the decision from Engeron and as someone who litigates and as someone who takes pride in, in my legal writing and also, you know, my ability to cross examine witnesses. One thing that Engeron said that persuaded him was that Trump had no credibility at all because he never answered the question asked. He always, you know, avoided answering that question. He said he frequently interjected long, irrelevant speeches on issues far beyond the scope of the trial, which we obviously know he didn't. No, he didn't. Like, you know, we, we tell young lawyers all the time when you cross-examine, you know, you got to get the witness to if it's if you're the proponent of the witness, only answer the question asked. And it shows in real life how failing to do that affects your credibility. In this case, to a huge degree, uh, according to to Engeron. Totally agree, Rich. I mean, client control is a big issue uh, for litigators. And Trump is not the only person who's pretty senior who's done a bad job in court. But the consequences for him, as you sort of mentioned in the lead in, are going to be tough because he's got his criminal trials coming up the next one, March 25th in New York. So I'm not going to be buying the sneakers soon. I agree with you. It's a well-written decision. He did. Uh, Judge Engeron did not give the death penalty to Trump's businesses in New York, which probably was smart for appeal. But Trump may have had a bad week if things don't go well and he has to go to trial on the January 6th matter in D.C. 
I suspect he's going to have uh, a very much worse summer than any of us on this uh, call. Steve, the grounds for appeal among them will be, and perhaps the strongest one, uh, is that, listen, real estate inherently involves some degree of salesmanship, exaggeration. You know, many have come out um, uh, since the judgment in Trump's defense saying that's New York real estate. You're in the business of exaggerating. And, you know, that number one and number two, there were no victims, right? The victims in this case, the banks uh, actually made off pretty well because their loans were repaid. The counter to that, of course, as Letitia James, the AG said, is the victims are all of the citizens of New York, all of whom have to live within the rules. You can't just go into a bank and lie about your uh, possessions and your financial statement and get a loan. That's what has been decided that Trump did in this case. But what do you think of any potential grounds for appeal for, for Trump? Well, as it relates to an appeal, I'm not an expert as not being an attorney here, but you bring up a good point uh, about the the real estate, having done a lot of real estate in myself. And, you know, there's likely some political motivation uh, in in the AG's case. I mean, she made it part of her campaign when she ran. Uh, I think that was there. She also came out recently and said that, you know, it's not just Trump. Anyone that did this would be held accountable. I think it would be easy for her to show a list of where these accountabilities have fallen to sort of provide, hey, we do this all the time. That was going to be my thought. Uh, Spending a lot of time in New York, dealing with a lot of people in New York and a lot of big cities, Chicago, having some real estate expertise. uh, I certainly understand that (laughs) Trump is probably not the only person who has done this. So. I would like to add, can I add one thing? So uh, $87,000 a day in interest he accumulates, uh, I believe, was what I just read. Um, and it would, the, the math, the, the quick math that I did said would, just to cover the, the 300 plus million, he would need to sell around 890,000 pairs of the gold shoes. Probably not going to hit that number. I don't believe he takes full margin on the shoes either. I think this is a licensing deal. So he's only getting a small percentage of that 399. So he might need to sell close to 2 million of those shoes to hit that 300 plus uh, uh, fee. So that's going to be tough. Better, right? Because we suspect they're made where? In China. (laughs) Yeah, right. It'll be interesting to see if the sneakerheads get involved in this one, if this becomes a collectible shoe. Uh, I'm not sure it will, but I will say this. I'm very curious where he's going to get the money to pay the bond, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we all have a right to know where he's going to get the money to pay for the bond, whether it's coming from his family or an investor or a foreign source um, who I think we know who that might be. Um, but um, certainly Trump had a bad week. All right. Moving on, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children under state law. Critics say this could have implications for fertility treatments. Rich, you're bringing this story to our attention. Class action, actually, by some plaintiffs in Alabama who had undergone uh, in vitro fertilization treatments, IVF, um, that led to creation of new embryos. And they were stored in a facility that um, uh, uh, where a patient wandered in back in 2020 and remove several embryos, allowing them to drop on the floor and break. Um, and then the question became whether that action was uh, akin to killing a living person. Um, the chief justice in writing the majority opinion this week said, uh, quoting the Bible, said that the meaning of the phrase, the sanctity of unborn life in the Alabama constitution includes those even before birth. He said that all human beings bear the image of God 
Their lives cannot be destroyed without uh, effacing his glory. Obviously, a very controversial decision, one that perhaps will end up in the Supreme Court, Tina. You know, what I find a little bit hypocritical, to be honest, is that obviously this is a very conservative court, very right-leaning court. What I consider hypocritical is just on a pure legal basis, forget where you fall on, you know, pro-life, um, pro-choice kind of thing. A pure constitutional analysis. Don't conservatives believe in strict interpretation of the law and, you know, original intent? And this is a law that goes back to the 1800s. I defy you to find the word embryo in there, right? It doesn't say embryo. It says human life. So on the one hand, if you're a conservative and, you know, in favor of this decision, I'm not saying I am or I'm not, um, you know, why don't you apply the same standard that you apply to your interpretation of so many other constitutional issues, which is don't go beyond the written word, consider what framers intended, but look at the words. Words don't say anything about embryos. So this is the ultimate example of taking something that was written long ago that says nothing about embryos and extrapolating that from those words. When liberals do that, conservatives go crazy. Similarly, right, when uh, a state like Colorado decides that a uh, that that Trump shouldn't be on their ballot because he was guilty of insurrection in violation of the 14th Amendment, Supreme Court is going to rule, we know, that the state doesn't have the right to do that because it's a federal issue. Again, totally hypocritical. You consider conservative ideology means states' rights. Let's not step in and over, you know, overcome a state's ability, autonomy to decide these things. So call it what it is. I would prefer conservatives just say, listen, we don't, we're pro-life, and this is a great decision for us. And just drop this whole thing about strict constitutionalism and original intent. It's all nonsense. It's totally hypocritical. Yeah, Rich, I agree. And we could spend hours talking about this. I mean, I would fully expect that this is going to get appealed. The question is whether the court would take it up. I mean, this is really extending what I would say the general trend has been by virtue of the conservative court. Um, into IVF, which I think some people prognosticated was a possibility, but now we're seeing it play out in Alabama. And um, I agree with you. I mean, like, for example, Scalia is one justice who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. I don't agree with his ideology, but he was very, um, you know, he would do the strict constructionist thing until it wasn't really aligned with how they wanted to come out with the decision. And then he'd develop like a five-pronged test, um, which would get them to the same finish line that they wanted to get to. So, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, this is actually a really not a good decision for folks who are pro-choice. The question is going to be is as to whether or not this is going to be appealed, will the court take it up, and what other states are going to do that have similar fact patterns. I mean, this is a pretty specific fact pattern, which may end up sort of, you know, counterbalancing this decision, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and to that point, Steve, the uh, a justice who wrote in the dissent said that this law, again from 1872, didn't define minor child, and of course was being stretched from its original intent to now, uh, you know, cover cover frozen embryos. I mean, listen, I don't think it's inconsistent to be honest to um, say that frozen embryos are the beginning of life if you believe life begins you know, at or before conception. I think it's consistent. So I'm not surprised by the decision. You might not agree with it, but I do think it's with, you know, what the court, the Supreme Court did recently with Roe v. Wade and what they will continue to do. Yeah, so don't let my accent fool you. I am not in Alabama. Uh, I am in a bordering state. Uh, I am in Georgia. 
Um, so when I first heard this, my first concern as a twice married uh, individual was, oh, no, additional child support. Uh, but I think I'm safe there. Uh, and, and then secondly, I was like, OK, that was the negative. Then I thought, well, the positive might be, do I have additional dependents now on my taxes? So it just depends on uh, your point of view here, what uh, what you think. So. Absolutely. Bill, this would never fly in California. We know that where you are. But what are your thoughts? Does this now open sort of a Pandora's box for uh, this this type of these type of lawsuits? Yeah, look, I think Pandora's box has been open for a while now, right, since the Supreme Court changed uh, the views on abortion. I think in some blue states, the courts are probably going too far to the left in judicial activism. I think the Alabama decision is a good example of the courts in a more conservative state going too far to the right. In preparing today, Rich, I noticed the same thing you did. It's an 1872 law. Embryos uh, were, were not clearly what was intended by the legislature. I think the court could have easily just kicked the case and, and not had a very broad ruling and said, look, it wasn't intended. It's up to the legislature to do what they want to do. I do think the ruling, though, is a, another warning sign for everybody, right? Anybody who may want to use IVF, be careful. Anybody who believes in reproductive rights and women's rights, be careful. Because I don't think that this is uh, the, the last of decisions that, that uh, many of us are going to find offensive and, and contrary to what we believe that the Constitution and the laws were designed to protect. Uh, and I do think this this ruling will not limited to be limited to the borders of Alabama. I think other states will get involved, legislatures and judges, and continue to erode away rights in this area. You know, it's really not that far, Bill, Tina, Ryan, Steve, to 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 then saying, you know, contraception is not allowed, right? Because what is contraception if you believe in this kind of ruling, but a weapon of some kind? If you follow this line of thinking then you can be guilty of manslaughter or maybe even murder for breaking these embryos. Well, is contraception, is a condom, is birth control also then a weapon that you can use in, in murdering these unborn entities? I mean, it really doesn't stop. And you think, you know, you might think that's crazy. This is next. I mean, a lot of people who knee deep in issues think that what's next to go uh, to the Supreme Court and to be overruled is the right to contraception, which... Get your head around is, that. Right. Is, is a miscarriage is is a miscarriage manslaughter? Yeah, and yet we are we are with guns, right? Is a condom like a gun? I mean, that's next, right? Okay, we go from Alabama to Oklahoma. We know you're not supposed to text and drive, but uh, this month we learned it's also probably not a good idea to text and judge. Tina, you've got a story out of Oklahoma about a judge who was sending hundreds of texts while overseeing a, a pretty serious trial. Yeah, Ryan. So our listeners will remember that this is a story that we've been following here on Legal Faceoff for a number of months now. It involves an Oklahoma judge that was behaving badly during a murder trial last summer, and the saga ended last week with her resignation. So as our listeners will remember, the whole mess started with her exchanging some 500 text messages with her bailiff during the course of a murder trial for a man accused of beating a toddler to death. This trial began in June and she, you know, putting aside the fact that it's 500 text messages with her bailiff, you know, and she's not paying attention to the trial. She's got this stream of commentary via text. It was just so many of the comments she made um, substantively were completely inappropriate, including talking about how the prosecutor had baby hands, 
mentioning that he has sweating proclivities, um, sounding like she was rooting for the defense attorney, saying she's awesome and can I clap for her, um, talking about the prosecutor's um, body parts, if you will, and objectifying witnesses and calling some of the evidence uh, during the trial boring. Um, she decided to step down. Um, she's agreed as part of her settlement and agreement to not seek another judicial position, at least in Oklahoma. So other states should be aware that apparently she may buy an interest in trying to be a judge in another state. Um, and she's waived her right to an appeal. Uh, when she submitted her resignation, she said that she was regretful. She acknowledged that what she did was wrong. Um, but she only she only claimed responsibility for some of the allegations and said that notwithstanding all the texting that she did, um, which she said in and of itself was inappropriate, she claims that she nevertheless stayed impartial um, during during the whole process. Um, the chief judge here, uh, the chief justice of the Oklahoma Supreme Court, had submitted a pretty detailed petition, which we don't have a lot of time to go into here, but it was just more of the same, Rich, a lot of really crazy stuff, calling witnesses liars, disparaging them, um, displaying bias throughout the trial. So this is pretty egregious stuff, but probably not, maybe as egregious as the next story that you're going to cover. Well, lost of damn minds. I mean, that's just, it's just one in a line of stories that we've been covering that drives me nuts. So listen, I, I, you know, I coach a lot of sports for my kids. I've been coaching for a long time, and I'm a big believer in never blaming the referee. Like, I never attack the ref. I hate it when people blame the ref. But in this case, in the Murtaugh case, right, there was a hearing a couple weeks ago in the in the Murtaugh case um, where the jury or the judge heard evidence that the clerk was biased and was talking to jurors and perhaps altered their decision uh, we saw the, you know, we were all transfixed with the Fonnie Willis uh, testimony last week where, you know, the allegation is that she should be barred from pursuing that case because she was conflicted. It's all the same story. Like, you know, you got to blame these people, I'm not blaming a ref. Like, this is all nuts and it does have an effect. And I think that they should all, I mean, I think Murtaugh should go free. As hard as it is to say, I think, I think, you know, he's got one juror influenced by what the it's enough to let the guy go free or at least have a new trial. I, I, you know, I, I think it's crazy. I think in this situation, like this guy was convicted of a lesser offense, but that guy should get a new trial. The judge said I wasn't biased, but I wasn't the fact finder. Well, newsflash, like she makes so many rulings in a case that are impactful on the decision. You don't have to be the fact finder to be impactful on the case. She clearly made up her mind. We heard her. We saw her text. You know, one motion eliminate change that she made to the entire case. You know, Fonnie Willis, you know, you look at it so legally. Well, legally she might not be conflicted. Are you nuts? Like she hired a guy who was paying a guy totally unqualified, total conflict of interest. So I think this is all like symptomatic of people losing their damn minds. Do your job, an important job, treat it seriously, save the text till later. Just do your damn job, Bill. I mean, it's frustrating. Look, I agree. I was not aware of this story until a couple of days ago, and I don't get shocked much anymore, but I actually was shocked, right? I was shocked because of the seriousness of the allegations in the case and a murder case involving, you know, a baby. I was shocked by how many texts there were and how graphic they were. I mean, we need heroes, right? We need people to look up to. 
and uh, institutions in our society are under attack. We know that. Uh, but this judge did everything wrong, nothing right. And to suggest that any of those texts were appropriate, let alone all of them, to me, is just laughable. And I think the judge should be disqualified everywhere. I hope she never takes the bench again. But judges have a very important role, right, and a critical role in the in the functioning of our legal system. And we talk about Alabama that go too far. This is too far in a different way. And we need to hold our judges to account. So I'm glad she's off the bench. Steve, yeah, well put. Steve, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so the, the claim that she was impartial, uh, there was a clear differentiator from the prosecution to the defense. Her focus was on the prosecutor, I believe, in the tone of the text. So to claim you're impartial, that pretty much is out the window. Um, I, I would like an update from the bailiff. Did he have any punishment uh, in this situation or, he, or is he simply just the recipient of the text? I don't know. I think the only thing that could have been worse than this is if she was instead of texting it on Facebook, she was actually filming TikTok dances while the trial was going on. But I don't think that's the case. So that's good. The bailiff has the Billy Bush defense. I was only the recipient. I wasn't engaged in the discussion. All right. Digging deeper into the grab bag. Uh, Rich, you picked up on another bad judge story. This one about a judge charged with shooting her ex-boyfriend in the head. Uh, but Rich, that might not even be the worst part of this. What would a prosecutor say she did next? And not only is she accused of shooting her uh, ex-boyfriend in the head, uh, but then she blamed him. She told the police that, uh, you know, she woke up, she came back from something, maybe the gym or something, and he was there lying in bed after taking a nap. And he had a massive head wound, which you would expect from getting a bullet lodged in your cranium. Um, but it was self-inflicted. She said, uh, oh, what did you do? Mike, what did you do to yourself? According to the affidavit, um, after uh, after seeing him uh, with this massive head wound, um, the, the problem is, you know, they interviewed her and found gun residue on her hand. It was her gun. Uh, she was found to be deceptive in lots of other ways. But here's my takeaway, Tina, from, I mean, besides all that, Here's the additional history for um, this uh, Pennsylvania judge. So she was she was on the bench since 2016. So uh, she was suspended a little while ago, not too long ago, uh, for allegedly violating a judicial probation because previously she interfered in a criminal stop involving her son. Her son was arrested and she allegedly um, interfered with that. But that's not all. She also, um, let's see, was charged with shooting her estranged husband in 2019 uh, after she invited him over. Uh, they were helping. He was helping her move furniture um, and she shot him. Yeah, she was not charged because it was ruled to be self-defense. But my God, should be continuing to be on the computer. So many violations, so many problems. Well, I guess, Rich, third time of the charm. I mean, you know, I guess that the first two things she did weren't bad enough. Um, second, whatever became of something that we lawyers know as, I don't know, character and fitness. I mean, we have to go through this sort of vetting process to become lawyers. Like whatever happened to the similar vetting process? I don't know, for our judiciary. I mean, this is outrageous. Yeah, definitely. Steve, uh, Bill, honey, anything to add to the fact that this is Disgraceful, of course. Yeah, again, having having been through a couple of breakups uh, in the past, seeing something like this, I consider myself fairly lucky. That's good friends here. What's that? Friend developing with uh, your perspective on these stories. 
But you never shot you never shot an act in the head, I would assume. No, no, I have not. Um, yeah, I'm just fortunate, I guess, I suppose. Between this and the embryos, I'm in a good spot. Bill, how badly do you have to screw up to lose your job as a as a judge in Pennsylvania? Uh I was shocked that she had the, the, the prior incidents as well in her, in her background. Apparently, she is in jail now. She can't post her $300,000 bail. So there's going to be some punishment in the, in the short term, at least. Uh, she's entitled to a defense. She's entitled to the presumption of innocence. But if she did it, and it sounds like she probably did do it, lock her up. All right. Moving along, there's been a lot of criticism about social media lately luring kids into spending way too much time on apps and having a negative impact on them. Now there's a class action lawsuit against the dating apps, Tinder, Hinge, there's some others in there, claiming the apps aren't really trying to help people find love. They're actually intentionally trying to get people hooked into using them. Tina, you had this story for us. Yeah, Ryan. So Tinder, Hinge, and a bunch of other dating apps were sued by six users of those apps um, in a proposed class action Uh, none other than Valentine's Day in federal court in California with claims that the apps encourage compulsive use and prioritize profits over romance um, by being filled with addictive features that encourage that compulsive use. Specifically, the lawsuit alleges that the designs of the dating platforms include game-like features that will lock users into a perpetual pay-to-play loop Um, And instead of really trying to help users find relationships, the end goal is to really turn users into what they frame as addicts who end up just continually purchasing more and more expensive subscriptions to access even more and more special features that promise romance and finding your true love. So the allegations, um, you know, say that the business models depend on generating returns through monopolizing users' attention um, and just driving addictive behavior that was compared to gambling. Um, And as you said, Ryan, this lawsuit, while it focuses on adults, is against the backdrop of just general increased scrutiny over what has been framed as addictive features across any number of different websites and platforms. And those objections have really been with young people in mind um, and with framing the issue as one of creating perilous issues with respect to their mental health and putting that at risk. So, Rich, I think we're just going to continue to see more of these. I mean, I'm not really particularly, I don't know, sympathetic to this one, because, you know, if you take this down um, the logical progression, then you're just going to start outlawing a whole host of other things for creating what is termed addictive behavior, especially when the users of these platforms are supposed to be adults. Yeah, 100 percent. It's a silly lawsuit. I mean, uh, Tinder, Hinge, uh, whatever app you're talking about, they're selling a product, right? And they're in the business of making that product as attractive as possible. And them uh, selling to the most vulnerable people, meaning people who are looking for relationships, that's called business. That's called supply and demand. No different than, you know, a soda manufacturer um, uh, selling their product to, you know, uh, likely targets. Um, now, you know, it has been ruled over the years that when that crosses the line, in cases like, you know, tobacco, for example, um, uh, when they are purposely uh, altering data 
or falsifying information to go after young people, for example, that has been ruled to cross the line. I agree with that. But in this case, yes, they are selling a product and selling so in a way that is meant to, um, you know, play on your vulnerabilities and your desire to find relationships. That's just part of the the, the selling of the products. So I've got no problem with it. I think it's kind of a dumb lawsuit. Uh, Steve, what are your thoughts? So I don't have any direct, I don't have any direct uh, experience with dating apps, but I do probably because I'm such a catch. A disclaimer right away from Steve for his significant other that could be watching today. No, she's not here. Um, I've never. That's Steve. I've never been on that. But I do have multiple friends who are on these dating apps, and this actually changed my perspective of them personally because these guys are successful. They're moderately handsome, and they cannot seem to get a date. They cycle through every girl and that are on these apps in every large city. And I'm like, I've actually asked him, I was like, can I just be an earpiece to hear how bad your communication skills are? Because how are you still going through dates? This makes me believe maybe it wasn't so much as them. I will never admit that to them, but maybe that's the case. It's a good point, you know, because in the defense of the lawsuit, they are more than ever, I think, set up like these video games directed to kids where, you know, you, you get in and then you got to buy more coins, more credits and all that. That is how these apps are set up. And like, they'll, they'll say, well, there's someone looking at you, but to unlock that, you've got to pay us an additional fee. So, I mean, there is something to that, but hey, caveat emptor. If you don't like it, don't, don't buy the app. A little bit of a tough business model too. You want people to use you to find love. And then when they do, they go away. So tough business model. All right. Uh, Alexei Navalny's mother has filed a lawsuit with a Russian court. She wants her son's body released. That sounds like an uphill battle. But actually, uh, there is a hearing scheduled for next month. Yeah, I mean, we all know uh, what happened to this uh, opponent of Putin. And by all accounts, of people who know this area way better than we all do, you know, Putin's hands are all over this murder of the most um, vocal critic of, of him and his administration. And he died in custody last week in Siberia in a prison camp. And the official word was that he was out you know, for a walk and he fell. Obviously, that's not what happened. He was murdered. Um, and, you know, the body hasn't been released. And in this country, um, you know, we have a habeas corpus uh, history where, you know, that literally means produce the body. Uh, the government can't hang on to the body like they are in Russia. So, you know, uh, mom has filed a lawsuit to release the body, to put some closure to it. She's filed... Uh, and this hearing will be next week uh, in a uh, hearing site that is north of the Arctic Circle. Um, you know, Tina, I've had some difficult legal arguments and some difficult difficult venues over the years. Seems like an uphill battle. And by the way, it's uh, predictably a closed hearing. So, you know, the Russian system is way different than ours. Like it or not, we've, he we've heard some examples today of some awful examples of our, our, uh, our, our judicial system. But at least this wouldn't happen. But, yeah, it seems like a bit of a a rough hearing that'll happen that will unlikely yield uh, what she's looking for. Maybe it will. Yeah, no, Rich, it's really, I mean, I think we all sort of know or highly suspect what's going on here. And I think, you know, even if assuming best case scenario for his mother, that she's able to get access to his body, my guess is that given the state of the body or what's likely to be the state of the body by that point, um, there may not be the opportunity, depending on how he died, 
it may be tough to conclusively determine what the cause of death was. I'm sure all of this was probably thought through um, when what befell him befell him. Right. I mean, I don't, I just, I mean, the bodies decompose and, you know, there's, I mean, even if she gets her hands on it, I don't think it's going to be conclusive. Yeah. Bill, in the wake of this, we also saw a, um, naturalized American citizen, a ballerina. She was taken prisoner in Russia within the last week for giving $51, I believe, to a Ukrainian charity. Um, right. Paraded around, you know, by Russian authorities, very, um, you know, high-profile way on social media. Uh, rough times. But, yeah, you know, hopefully uh, the, the family will get some closure from this. Yeah, Navalny gave his life trying to make Russia a better place, right? May he May he rest in peace. Uh, we've certainly talked about problems with our legal system today, but compared to uh, Russia's, we're, you know, light years ahead of them. I don't think the rule of law exists in Russia in any meaningful way. If, as the allegations are that Putin or his people poisoned Navalny, they will, I think, wait and release the body till after the poisons have dissipated to try to cover their tracks. I wish his his wife and his mom and, and family well in trying to pursue a better future for the Russian people, but I suspect the hearing will not go well. And uh, I hope just nothing else happens to to hurt uh, either the mom or the wife or the family. And last but not least, we haven't hit our Taylor Swift quota for the podcast yet. So let's get that. Uh, let's get that in. And now, Tina, you flagged this story about a new law school class focusing exclusively on intellectual property law through the lens of Taylor Swift. I don't mean to make light of this because this is actually really interesting with her basically re-recording her own music. Of course, uh, people have been tracking her private jet. There's a lot to talk about with Taylor Swift in the in the legal world. Yeah, Ryan. So, I mean, we love Taylor Swift. We cover her frequently um, on the show and given her tremendous fame, I think we knew it was just a matter of time before a number of law schools were going to be starting to offer classes focusing on Taylor Swift and her legal wranglings, as well as her entrepreneurship, which I'll get to in a second. Um, so one of the law schools that you that you're referring to, Ryan, is University of Miami, and they offer this class called Intellectual Property Law Through the Lens of Taylor Swift, which was a course that focused on a number of lawsuits that we've actually covered here on Legal Faceoff, including her lawsuit with Evermore Park, which is that theme park in Utah that we talked about that had sued her for trademark infringement after she released her album called Evermore back in 2020. Um, they also covered that fight she had, which we've also talked about here on the show with her old record company over ownership of her old master recordings which had led her to re-record her back catalog and has been a tremendous success for her. Um, there was also the dispute she had with Spotify over streaming royalties, um, as well as her deals with JD.com and Alibaba to combat Chinese counterfeiting. So there have been a lot of different legal issues that were covered in this class. And of course, it was a very popular class. The University of South Dakota is another law school that has a Taylor Swift specific syllabus, um, which actually covers issues, not just in IP law, but actually looks to the lyrics of her songs um, and tries to analogize the lyrics from her songs into lessons learned on how we can all become better lawyers. In addition to these two law schools, there are a number of other universities across the country, including Stanford and UC Berkeley, where they are examining a range of issues that are Taylor-related 
including um, the way she writes her songs, the musical style of her songs, the psychology of her music and relationship, as well as looking at what a tremendously successful entrepreneur she is, um, you know, cutting across areas like, you know, business law and branding, which have made her extraordinarily successful. So, Rich, if we were back in law school, I would definitely be taking a Taylor, a Taylor Swift law class if I could. And way better than first year um, property law. That was brutal. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, professors are using uh, actual case studies and, you know, things that attract young people to engage in the law. You know, I just got off um, semester teaching uh, law students and, you know, it could be a little dry. I tried to spice it up with a lot of current events and, you know, references. And I think it worked out pretty well. But yeah, I mean, there are a ton of lessons to be learned from uh, people as high profile and as successful as Taylor Swift. So I think it's a great, a great idea. We'll end off the show, guys, Bill and uh, and Steve, uh, with getting to know you a little bit more. And we're not going to ask your favorite Taylor Swift song. We've done that at least a couple of times in the show. But maybe you can tell us if this is not, you know, this probably would be all of our favorite courses if we took this one in law school. But any particular that you remember in your academic was that was your favorite, your favorite teacher, want to shout out on Legal Face Up because we know they're listening. Among the millions and millions of people are likely your former teachers, but how about a favorite course or teacher over your career? Uh, who should we start? Well, let me let me jump in here. Uh, so, so I went to the University of Georgia, and I had no favorite teachers because there were too many bar options. So, though I could tell you what my favorite bar was because that, but I did think from the Taylor Swift point of view, Match and Tinder should hire her as a spokesperson, because if anybody has dated a bunch of people and then finally found success is Taylor Swift. That's what they should do to solve their whole problem. It comes full circle. It's a great point. Bill, uh, favorite college bar we're adding to the equation? or <laughs> So I, I I went to Columbia, New York City, so it, it was not the most fun time, at least up in the Columbia neighborhood. The best bar was the West End because that was the only bar. But I'll give a shout out to James Shenton. May he rest in peace. He was a history professor at Columbia. He was phenomenal. He would get up and lecture about things like the Civil War and read you diaries from guys who fought who may have been brothers or cousins on, on you know, uh, fighting on either side. So he certainly impacted uh, me and I think thousands of other students. So uh, hopefully somewhere he's smiling by hearing that. And uh, yeah, the West End was kind of a mediocre bar. I'd rather be in Athens. <laughs> Ryan Burrow, any favorite? Uh, let's see. I feel I feel pressure now that I have to say mass media law and ethics, knowing the panel <laughs> that I'm with here. I can't, you know, say Radio 101 or anything like that. So, yes, definitely mass media law and ethics. I got a lot out of it. Yeah, Tina. So um, at Northwestern, you know, we had a lot of great professors. I'd say my favorite was, may he rest in peace, Victor Rosenblum, who was my con law professor. He was amazing. I mean, he was definitely at the other side of the political spectrum from me, but he taught con law, starting with Marbury versus Madison in a way that it was almost like listening to a bedtime story every night. It was so incredibly interesting. And I remember that one of the times he called on me, I mean, this is how much he burned in my brain, was he called on me to discuss the Casey case which, as we all know now, you know how important that was at the time and how far we've evolved in that whole conversation on abortion. 
since then, but I remember he called on me to discuss that case and how wonderfully generous he was um, in in terms of his ideology about the topic. He was just so wonderful about you know, being welcoming and inviting of a conversation that is as charged as that, even with people who were so, um, you know, I guess who disagreed with where he came out on that topic. So um, he was an amazing influence on my on my career, actually, because a lot of the issues that I deal with touch on First Amendment and other con law issues. So. All right. Great answer. Uh, I went to McGill University in beautiful Montreal, not far from Quebec City, Bill Donovan. But um, I had a professor named Gil Troy who taught uh, American history, which was my interest. He had taught at Harvard before McGill. And then he went on to teach uh, uh, American history at McGill with a specialty in the American presidency, which was fascinating to me. So I took uh, a lot of his classes. And then years later, he was a guest on the longest running legal podcast in history and the most popular legal face-off. So it all came full circle. Thank you, Gil Troy, uh, for all of your uh, amazing mentorship over the years and continues to treat it, uh, not treat, but teach at McGill University. Well, th thank you so much, Stephen Rios and Bill Do Donovan Jr., uh, and that'll do it for this latest installment of Legal Faceoff on WGN. Special thanks to uh, U of I College of Law professor Michael Leroy, internet superstar Veronica Koval, and director of Special Education Advocacy Clinic and clinical associate professor of law at William & Mary Jim Wheaton. Also, Ben Anderson, Lisa Stiegel, Cortina Martini, Rich Lenkoff, I'm Ryan Bro. Thanks again for joining us on Legal Faceoff on WGN. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.